We are entering the season of Advent, and Advent is a church word. For those of you that aren't real church people, uh, we understand that sometimes we use strange language, and Advent means the coming or the appearing. And so we call this season the Advent season, and although they're, they're gaining in popularity here, it's very common, almost every home that is a, a Christian home or even culturally Christian home in Europe will have an Advent calendar. And behind each day, you open up the wee door and there's either a picture or a story or a treat or a little toy just to help the kids get ready all the way to Christmas Day. We celebrate during this period the gift to the world of a baby long ago. But that baby was also king and savior, born in Bethlehem. And I find it wonderful that many of the scriptures we read around this time are not really from the New Testament. They're not from Matthew or Luke, who actually spend time talking about the birth. Yet, they're read, or rather, the, the scriptures we read are out of Isaiah, written many hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. But that prophet talks about Jesus coming so much that he is referred to as the messianic prophet, meaning the prophet that speaks of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus, the Son of God. And the where and why of all the reasons he spoke of this child, that's important to us today as we think of dedicating our own children. At the time, Isaiah was the political and the spiritual advisor to the king of Israel. Israel did not have a division between politics and religion. Every time that it did, it went very badly. They were supposed to be a godly kingdom run by God and his representatives until the coming of Jesus. And so Isaiah was there to make sure the king knew what he was supposed to do. And the problems that that king faced were very, very serious. They were surrounded by enemies. Some of those enemies posed as friends. Some of those enemies posed as allies saying, hey, you come over and we'll help you when they were really waiting to destroy them. They were, Israel was, was worried. If you've ever seen Israel on a map, you know why. There, it's, it's, it's in a bad place. Golda Meir, the first uh, prime minister of, of, of Israel, I believe first, um, used to lament that God had led the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness to the only place in the Middle East with no oil. It, it is a barren place. It is a difficult place to defend. And Israel was convinced they could not stand on their own. They knew Assyria was coming. Now, those of us of a certain age, we, would, we, would, we could put in there for Assyria the Soviet Union, and you'd get the idea of what they felt was coming. They also heard, and it was accurate, that Assyria had formed an alliance with Israel's own blood relatives, the kingdom to the north. That is, they usually call that Israel, and this little group called Judah, but I'm just speaking of Israel so we don't get too much into the weeds here. Their relatives just to the north were joining Assyria to come take over the city of God. I want you to think about this for a minute. This would be somewhat like, but not exactly like, because the United States has quite a lot of uh, guns and tanks and planes. But it would be rather like waking up one day to realize 
Canada had declared war on you. Don't, that, stop it. That, uh, they're sending in the moose. Uh, that, that Canada has, has declared war on you, that so has Mexico and all of Central and South America, and Japan and China have agreed to come from the West. And you'd look to the East for help, and there's Breton, your ally. There's France, your ally, and Germany. And they're saying, you know something? We think we're going to come get a piece of this too. And one morning, you've woken up, and it's all gone sideways. Israel, all during this time, had been very rich and prosperous. They had nothing to complain of financially. However, they'd spent that money on themselves. Parties, festivals. They didn't dig down. They didn't take this time of prosperity to dig deep wells of spiritual strength. They had used their prosperity for pleasure, and now it was about to run out. When all we have is what the world offers us, to be fair, at a pretty steep price, we are easily shaken and destroyed when the world reneges on its promises and takes it back. It strikes us. And Judah, Israel, we're calling it today, was to be struck. They looked to the north, no help there, only gathering storm clouds that threatened to, to wipe out the very memory of who they were. To the south, Egypt claimed to offer help, but that would be a very foolish thing if they relied upon Egypt. Sadly, spoiler alert, later they relied on Egypt, and it was a very sad thing. They were, frankly, just in the way. Again, look at Israel on a map. It's, not on, it, it's on the way to everywhere. It's not the end its destination of anybody. You go from here to the north, to Lebanon, to, or you go over to Syria, you go to Jordan, you go down to Saudi Arabia, you go up to Turkey, you go down to Egypt, and there's one road. Israel, Judah, the people of God. And yet, they, they couldn't understand, why is God letting this happen to us? How many times have we said the same thing about everything from illness to job loss to national crisis or international crisis? They said, we're the guardians of God's word, the very temple of God. We guard it. We're the only ones. None of these others will take care of it. God, you've got to help us. How can we, how can we find ourselves one morning in, the, in really a threat of being completely wiped from the earth by the greatest armies ever assembled. So they call to, Eli uh, to Isaiah, and they say, give us hope. You're a prophet. You're a man of God. Give us a word of hope. Give us a strategy. Give us a way out of this. Show us that God has not deserted us, and that he will ride in on the wings of angels and destroy our enemies. I was very good friends once with a college president that, uh, well, we're still friends, frankly, but um, at that time, he was trying to get something for the college to save it, and it came in last minute, and I'll never forget his words. He said, we serve an 1159 God, a God that shows up at the very end, and my thought was, you know what? That's like the United States Calvary and every Western I ever saw growing up. That you spent the first hour and a half of the movie showing you're in big trouble, buddy. 
And then the very last thing, you'd hear the trumpet, and here comes the Calvary. What happens if the Calvary doesn't come? That's the worry. And so they run to Isaiah and say, tell us what's going to happen. We too are surrounded by our enemies. Let's, let's break this down a bit. Many of our enemies are there because of our own bad decisions. Most of the bombs in my resume I put there. Most of the problems in my life I caused. But there were some others that weren't necessary. Necessary. Sorry, some of you like an extra, you like an extra syllable, like you're running low. Um, the, uh, some of them, some of them I'm going, wait, 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 I didn't deserve this. Why is this happening? Why did the people in San Bernardino get shot? Why did the people in Paris get shot? Why did the people in Lebanon and Nigeria this last week? Why did the people uh, in several places in Nigeria, uh, frankly, but also Sierra Leone, die of bombs going off? What, uh, what happened to the people in Egypt that bombs went off this week? They didn't ask for this. We didn't ask for it. We didn't cause this. When we find ourselves in the way and the world wants to run right over us, where are we going to find hope? Well, Isaiah starts in chapter 1 by laying out how bad the situation really is, and it is very bad indeed. God says they are deserted. Their worship is not acceptable to them. You remember Tony brought up the aroma was great. By the time of Isaiah, God's going to say, it stinks. I don't like it. But he still gives them hope, even in chapter 1, which is not a happy chapter. Chapter 1 of Isaiah, verses 16, 17, and 18. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. <laughs> that's, that's apparent. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the cause, the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I took some heat over this recently when I put on Facebook on a day when everybody else seemed to be putting up, we're all doomed, we're all dying, grab something and hurt somebody else because they're going to hurt you. And I put up there, our greatest weapon is love. When we are attacked, the only thing we have to offer is love. But in Isaiah chapter 1, what does he say? You're surrounded by enemies. What are you supposed to do? Seek justice. Take care of the widow. Look after the poor. You can be going, wait a minute. Shouldn't there be a sharp-edged implement involved here somewhere? And he's saying, no. Just do good stuff. I'll fight the battles. It's hard for us to deal with sometimes. Because we want a hope that is either a military hope or a political hope. And I'm not, not opposed to the military in any sense of the term, and those of you that know me know that quite well. I'm not opposed to politics. I just like it to get out of my way most of my time. I, I thank God, especially in these seasons, that I have a DVR, that I can go right past the political commercials. That's, uh, God made that on the eighth day, and it was good. And so I, I like this. But we keep looking for a political or a military champion. We keep looking for a political or military hope.
But the next few chapters make it very plain. Politics and military are not going to help you, Israel. See now, chapter three. The Lord, the Lord Almighty is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support. Oh, that's not what you want to hear. All supplies of food and all supplies of water. The hero, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of the 50, the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. Okay, what are we left with? I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, and nobody, the nobody, against the honored. This is not good. And Isaiah says, so where's the hope? There's a great chapter, chapter 6, where there's this great scene of Isaiah being taken into the anteroom, the beginning area, the, the foyer of God, and then walking into the throne room of God, and there are angels and cherubim and seraphim flying about. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. And Isaiah says, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And God goes, I am looking for someone to speak to my people. And Isaiah said, I'll, I'll go. And God cleans his lips and says, you go. But the people won't listen. Are you still waiting for the hope? Then he says this, chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields left ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as a terebinth and oak trees leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Years and years ago, I did a medical seminar with a, uh, and I played a very minor part with one of the greatest cancer surgeons of all times, Bernie Siegel. Back in the 80s, he wrote a multi-million dollar bestseller uh, called Love, Medicine, and Miracles. We were in upstate New York. I'd, and I'd barely gotten to America. Holding this big uh, outdoor, really, seminar for people that were dying. Uh, it was, you know, uh, those of us holding it were the only ones not dying of an actual disease at the time. And Bernie talked about having a reason to live. And he brought up this little Jewish lady. Bernie's Jewish as well. She's, and he talked about how tiny she was and how racked and riddled with cancer she was. She was supposed to be dead. But she kept saying, no, Bernie, I have a son who's getting married. And I'm going to be there. And he would look at the charts and he knew, no, you're not. But on the day, they came in and they dressed her and they did her hair. And he kept thinking she's going to die in any second now because she can't take this. But they took her. They, the wedding came back and, of course, she was exhausted. The pulse was very thready, gasping with breath. And he came in and he patted her. And he said, I guess... It's okay to go now. He said, her little scrawny hand reached up and said, I have another son. (laughs) 
sometimes you just need a bit of hope. And as Isaiah says, here's from God, it's all going to be wiped out. But there's a root. I'm leaving something there for you. So Isaiah goes into the court of the king and chapter 7 and verse 2 says that the court of the king was terribly shaken by the fact that Aram and Ephraim and all these groups had now joined a coalition and they were coming against the city of Jerusalem. And Ahaz, the king, was terrified. And so Isaiah said, if you don't believe that God is going to leave a root, ask him for a sign. And Ahaz said, I'm afraid to ask him for a sign. And so Isaiah said, so he'll just give you a sign. And he did. But he didn't give him a sign you would have expected. Chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether the deepest depths or not highest heights. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? I, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's not the Calvary. That's not a military solution. It's not a political solution. And when was the last time that you were surrounded by enemies, hateful people were kicking in your doors and you said, send in the baby? That's what God's doing. A baby? We're getting a baby. How is that going to help us? He wanted armies. He wanted chariots. He wanted earthquakes to swallow up his enemies. He wanted the angel of death to come and kill a bunch of people like they did with Nebuchadnezzar's army. God says, no, I'm going to send you a baby. But what a baby. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, it's not going to be an army. It's not going to be a political movement. It's not going to be a social movement. God's going to do it. Get on board with the son he sends. For it's our only hope. What a baby. The baby's not going to bring armies. It's not going to be a sudden showing up of Calvary at the end of a Western. It's going to be a new kingdom, a new movement, a new world that begins with the birth of a single child. Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots. That little hope, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. The wolf will lie down, will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together. 
and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. The birth of Jesus shows us that God has not yet given up on us. Prepare to hear that a lot this month as we celebrate Advent. When he arrives, when Jesus arrives through Mary, what do the angels say? They don't say, God has come down to earth and he's going to sort you lot out. Brace yourselves, this is going to hurt. No. They say, peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. God likes you. God's not done with you. God has not deserted you. God still loves you. And so he gives you his son. And not just his son. He gives us our sons and our daughters and our grandkids, little beings made in the image and likeness of God. Every child born is a sign that God is not tired of the world. He is not done with us. He still believes in us, hopes in us, and loves us. As hard as it is for us to figure that out, you know, I've been married to the beautiful Miss Cammie for over 36 years now. I don't lay awake at night wondering, why does she love me? That's not a road I want to go down. And I don't want to ask her these questions often in case it sets her thinking. <laughs> and there are times I read my newspaper or I watch the news and I wonder, why hasn't God just wiped us out? The fact is, he loves us, and he has not given up on us, and you proved that this morning with those wee babies. I look at my grandsons, ages six and four and 18 weeks, and I look at my granddaughter, year and a half old, and I think, their church probably won't look like my church, and their world certainly won't look like my world, but I trust them, and I trust the God that leads them. My job is, as the biblical affirmations were, get them to Jesus, get them to that child, so that one day the love of Jesus, like the waters of the sea, will come over all the earth. Life is a precious gift. We hold every life precious. Those of you that are very old in the room, we won't point, you know who you are. Those of you that are very old and very hurting, your life is sacred to us too, and we will serve you too. Last night, in the floor below here, there were a lot of folk serving a lot of folk. A meal, then sending kids out with money that had been raised for them so that they could shop for their families. Kids that would not have had a dollar otherwise. Then they were brought back to a squad of people to wrap presents for them. I was there, I didn't wrap presents because we loved them. I just handed the tape. And I frankly didn't do a good job of that. But um, they taped and they, now why? Black and white together. Now think what happened in this city 100 plus years ago. 
it was different then, wasn't it? 200 years ago, it was different then, wasn't it? What's happening? Slowly but surely, the love of Christ wins. Slowly but surely, the kingdom will come. His will will be done. Every life is sacred, and that gift of life can only come through God the Father. He gave us life. He gave these children life, and he gave all of us life through the gift of a child. I'm going to ask you, if you would, please, to stand. I would like to close with the words of the great theologian Steve Earle. I'm so glad you got that. While he is a long-haired, kind of adult, hippie, songwriter type, he wrote these words. Once upon a time in a far-off land, wise men saw a sign and set off across the sand. Songs of praise to sing, they traveled day and night, precious gifts to bring, guided by the light. They chased a brand new star, ever towards the west, across the mountains far, but when it came to rest, they scarce believed their eyes. They'd come so many miles, and the miracle they prized was nothing but a child. Nothing but a child could wash these tears away or guide a weary world into the light of day. And nothing but a child could help erase these miles. So once again, we all can be children for a while. Now all around the world, in every little town, every day is heard a precious little sound. Every mother kind, every father proud, look down in all to find another chance allowed. Let us